That's where we're going to be today. Romans 12, 3 to 8 is our text. Uh, We love the Bible at this church. We love to work our way through books of the Bible so that that way we get to encounter God directly in His Word. And so we like to do that as well because it helps us come underneath its authority as a church. We're not just hearing kind of what Matt and Mike like to preach about, but we hear what it is that God has to say. And so if you're you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Romans uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the fledgling church in the city of Rome, really explaining the message of Christianity at depth. And so that's what Romans is. We're in Romans 12. Let me read 1 to 8, and I'll pray for us. These first two verses should sound familiar if you've been around. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your your word today, we want to hear your voice in it. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. And so I pray you'd give us all eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, your voice, and each and every one of us would know exactly what you're trying to say to us today. Lord, the word of God is living and active. This is not a dead book. You speak through it by the power of your spirit, Lord. And we want to acknowledge that. We want to come underneath that today. So bless our time, Lord, as we dig into Romans 12, 1 to 8, I pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Romans. And if you've been part of the journey, you would know the kind of the story that we've kind of been experiencing together. We spent the first 11 chapters digging into the gospel at depth, what it it is, how it changes us. We've been learning about how God justifies sinners, declares them righteous, that that God gifts us his Holy Spirit, that God adopts us into his family, that we become his sons and his daughters. That's what we've been learning about for 12 chapters, uh, 11 chapters. Chapter 12, we take a very sharp turn. 
The whole book swings on a hinge that is Romans 12, verse 1. We're no longer defining and exploring the gospel at depth. We are now asking the question, so what? What are its implications for us? How then shall we live in view of the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the, that's the, uh, the theme verse of the rest of the book of Romans. He's saying in light of all that deep theology we've been laying out, how then shall we live right now? What do we do with this? How do we live the Christian life right now in this moment? And so that's basically the rest of the book of Romans. And today, we're going to be basically focusing on one big idea. You would have seen it in the text. Quite clear, I think. Today, the one big idea is this. Living life as a living sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice, means to hand over our God-given gifts to God's service. Hand over our life, our gifts, to Him and for His Service, And so we're going to be looking through this passage at, at this big idea. In this text, we're given kind of three big ideas. Uh, firstly, we're given an image, a metaphor. We're given a warning, and we're given a calling to live out. An image, a warning, and a calling. So firstly, let's have a look at the image. Verses 4 and 5 show it nice and clear. He says, Paul says this, For, as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This, this, this metaphor that the body, that the church is the body of Christ, is one of Paul's very favorite things. He teaches about this all the time in all of his books, not literally every book, but it comes up again and again and again. He loves this metaphor. Um, so we've only got two verses here, but let me jump across to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, where he does, he says a lot of words about this, and so we're just going to let him expand, rather than me kind of expanding it, let's let Paul expand himself here over in 1 Corinthians 12. This is what he says over in 1 Corinthians 12 from verse 14. He says this, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the, if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So what he's saying is that every, every Christian who's part of the church belongs there. God did that on purpose. He's made us different on purpose. For if, if the whole body were an eye, just picture that for a second. Just one eye, floating in space, no legs to... If the whole body were an eye where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I love this idea of diversity and yet unity. We're one body and yet we're different, very different. And that's a glorious thing. We should not all look exactly the same to the glory of God. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, 
we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I love, this, I love this passage. I love this picture of the idea that Christians are called into this kind of interdependent relationship with one another, with Christ as our head. God, it says in verse 24, God deliberately designed this. This was his idea. He did this on purpose. His vision for the church was that it would be this one unified organism made up of many independent, interdependent, I should say, interdependent parts that are so different from one another. And we need one another. The head can't say to the foot, we don't need you. We need one another. This passage shows us just how communal the Christian faith is. Our faith is certainly personal. It is certainly personal, but it is not private, and it's not individualistic. The concept of a Christian who is disconnected from a local church it doesn't make sense in the New Testament picture of the church. The gospel calls us into a new family. We become part of the body of Christ. This is why we think the church is so important, the local church. This is where the Christians in this area connect together to live out this one bodiness of the gospel. And what I love about this passage as well is that every member, every person has a key part to play in that family, doesn't they? Don't they? The body is weaker, the body is harmed, the body suffers when it's deprived of its necessary members. So this is the picture. This is the, the teaching of the body of Christ and its individual parts. Yes, we're different, but we're connected in Christ for his glory. We exist for one another and for him. But there is a, a warning in here that I want us to not skip past either in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3 of the danger. The danger that Paul wants to put his finger on. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think, uh, you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You would have seen the word think come up twice. That's the key word there. Do not think of yourself more highly. Think with sober judgment. If you remember the previous verse, verse 2, Matt preached a little while ago. We need our minds transformed so that we think rightly. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We need to think rightly about ourselves and about God. But it's interesting to me as well what Paul puts his finger on here. He warns us specifically against an overinflated view of ourselves. So, our modern Western culture, we have identified as the major danger in our world, low self-esteem. Right? We've put our finger on that one and gone, that, that, that's a danger for people, and obviously there's some truth in that, but most cultures through time have identified the exact opposite as the main problem. 
we naturally just think too much of ourselves. Self-centeredness. We have an overinflated view of our rights, of our abilities, of ourselves in general. And so Paul puts his finger on self-promotion, self-exaltation, as a cancerous force for evil within the church. And haven't we seen this play out through history? And this is written 2,000 years ago. Do you not think the problem is tenfold bigger now in our day with social media and the dangers that come along with presenting ourselves to the world in a certain light? The danger has gone up tenfold with our culture of celebrity pastor culture and big dealness and all the everything that goes with that. And so in this church, we want to be careful. We want to see this danger. We want to, as a community, identify that and say, we don't want to go there. We want to say a hard no together to that kind of posturing, that kind of self-aggrandizing, that kind of self-exaltation, self-promoting tactics that we see elsewhere in the world because that kind of swagger undermines everything that we stand for. So we're just not going to do that and say no to those things. We're going to say a hard no as well to a personality-driven church. Jesus should not have to compete in this church for attention. Agreed? Agreed. And so, look, on a personal level, as your pastor, Matt's not here, but I'll speak for him as well, if and when Matt and I get sucked into this kind of thing, you have permission as a church to call us to account here. We never want to draw away attention from Jesus himself in this church. You have permission to hold us to account on this. Because like everyone else in this room, Matt and I, I'll speak for myself here, I guess, we tend to make everything about ourselves. Don't we? Of course we do. And I need Jesus to say to me, you are loved, but you're not a big deal. I think you need that as well. You're so loved, but you're not a big deal. This isn't written to leaders. This is written to the church. So yes, this is true for Matt and I because we're on the stage every week, sure. But this is not just a danger for leaders. Paul is addressing the Christians of the church. You guys. The temptations may look a little bit different in their detail in terms of how they work themselves out, but the root sin is exactly the same. We naturally tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe and everyone else as bit part players on the Broadway stage of our lives where we're the protagonist and they're just the extras, right? That's just, we left to write our own devices, that's how we think of our lives. But <laughs> what does God say? Hey, darling. That's right. Speaking of not making everything about yourself, feel free to just get everyone's attention as you be cute. See you down. So this is true for Violet as well, and for me and for everyone, right? That the church is not about you. All of this is not all about you. This world is not all about you. The kingdom of God is not just about you. Yes, it is for you to bless you. We get to participate in it, but it's not centered on you. You are not the sun in its orbit. Jesus Christ is the orbit, is the sun that we orbit together. Yeah. If you've read the Gospels, you know this is true. Jesus brings us up again and again and again. Let me take us to one place in the Gospels where Jesus helps us see just how insane we are when we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. 
Um, on the night that he was arrested, so before he was arrested and betrayed, at dinner time, Jesus gets up from his seat at dinner. He takes off his cloak. He ties a towel around his waist. He gets down on his hands and knees with, a water, with some water in a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. So he does this. They hate it. <laughs> oh, they they um, protest, I should say. They don't hate it. They, they don't know what's happening. They protest, and Jesus says, no, no, let me do this. In verse 12, this is what we said. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and res- resumed to his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand this? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. You're right to call me teacher. You're right to call me Lord. That's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Guys, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to be on our hands and knees a lot. We're going to be on our hands and knees a whole lot. Why? Because that is how he has loved us. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, which is always a marker in the Gospels, whenever Jesus says that, it's like, listen up, everyone. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. (laughs) You're loved, but you're not a big deal. Your king washes feet. You're not above your master. You're not above your master. We humbly serve because our king, Jesus, was humble. And he has served us. We serve because our king has served us. We prioritize others because the king prioritized us. Isn't that crazy? We are so loved, but we're not a big deal. Friends, we cannot be above this. We cannot be above serving like Jesus served. We just can't do it. We can't be above serving like Jesus served. So that's the warning we're given. Don't be self-important. The image we're given, the body, an interconnected body of, of Christ. And finally, we see a calling. The calling we're given as Christians in the church. What are we to do? Use your gifts. Bless others. Now, verse 5, let's go from verse 6. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. That's a different translation than before. Whoops. Now, here, if you were to count those, you'll see seven specific gifts listed there. If we were to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we'd see another 13 gifts that are different. If we went to Ephesians 5, we'd see another five gifts. If we went to Peter... We'll get another two. Do you want to click on to that next one? I've got the lists there, I believe. There we go. So, 
we're in Romans 12, and we've just discovered those seven. However, the fact that there are four different lists with four different entirely distinct lists, this should lead, lead us to conclude that none of these lists are exhaustive, okay? Because each church got a different list. <laughs> so, together, they should give us the idea of all the kinds of gifts that we deploy within the church, okay? I put together a, a second list which puts them into categories. So there's basically three big categories, okay? Speaking gifts, serving gifts, and sign gifts. And again, this is all the ones in the different texts of the Bible put together into a kind of a one single place. Speaking gifts, serving gifts, and sign gifts. We do not have time today, for a start. There's no kids' men today. <laughs> so we're not, we're not going through all of those today, and so you can all just breathe out. However, we are going to have a little look through the Romans 12 list briefly. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so do you want to flick on to the next one? Prophecy is the first one we are given in Romans 12. This is a can of worms kind of moment, okay? Because there's no quick way to talk about prophecy without having to say a few more things. Because this is a live and active in-house debate within the Christian church about how to interpret prophecy, okay? Um, and so I'm going to have to say a few things here. So we're just going to maybe press pause and just talk about prophecy for a little bit because I can't go past it without all the questions arising. And so I've got to give you enough without spending all day here. Okay, so firstly, <laughs> there is a big debate about this. What does this mean? Is this, is this particular gift, prophecy, and the other sign gifts, healing, miracles, etc., still active within the church, or have they ceased? That's the debate. In this church, both your pastors believe in the continuation of all the gifts, simply because... It seems, I don't think there's a verse that leads us to believe otherwise. If you're in this church and you're on the other team, so there's two teams, continuationist, continuation of the gifts, and cessationists who believe in the cessation of the gifts, right? Of the miracle gifts. If you're on team cessationist, firstly, um, you're welcome to be on that team in this church, for the record. <laughs> uh, also, you're in very good company. Lots of my heroes of the faith are on team cessationist. And so you're, yeah, you're lining up with some, with some uh, titans in the faith. We, okay, we have so much to say, but I won't, 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 won't go there anywhere. Okay, we've got four quick things that I just want to say about, about prophecy uh, to make sense of this before we move on to the rest of the gifts, okay? Sound good? Firstly, you see it up there. Prophecy is distinguished in all the lists from teaching. So I don't think we can just say it's kind of spiritual teaching or spiritual preaching. Uh, which is what the cessationist team would like to do. It's, there seems to be some nuance there. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing, this New Testament gift is distinct from Old Testament prophecy. This is the big one that we have to get our heads around. In the Old Testament, to disagree with a prophet is to disagree with God himself. There's just no room for, for disagreement with the Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament, what do we read? In 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Do not despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Get rid, of the, get rid of the junk, hold fast to the good stuff, but test it all. The Bible never told, told the Old Testament believers to test prophecies. <laughs> That'd be testing God himself. But in the New Testament, we're told to test everything. Don't despise them, but test everything. So there's a massive difference. So New Testament prophecy is not, thus saith the Lord, never that. 
because we test everything. We test everything. Scripture alone gives us the level of authority that says, thus saith the Lord. Okay? New Testament prophecy comes well underneath that. There's an example in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul puts the prophets in the, in the Corinthian church underneath his authority as an apostle. How can he do that? He was an apostle. They were New Testament prophets. They come underneath the authority of Scripture. And so in the same way, prophecy comes in this church underneath the authority of Scripture, 100%. We test everything. We don't hold fast to what is bad. We hold fast to what is good. That's the first thing to say. So there's massive difference. Again, so much to be said there, but I can't. Secondly, I mean, thirdly, I should say, how's this? There is examples in the New Testament where prophecy is misinterpreted. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's an example where in, uh, in uh, Acts 21, Paul arrives in Caesarea, I believe, on his way to Jerusalem. The Lord's called him to Jerusalem. There's a prophet there who came from somewhere else. Uh, and there's a prophet there, and he, he, puts, he binds his hands and his feet, and in front of the whole church says, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. You're going to get bound hand and foot. Don't go. And the church starts saying, Paul, you can't go. You're going to get arrested when you go there. And Paul says, in effect, yeah, I know. God's calling me into that. And so you've got what seems to be a genuine prophecy from Agabus that God gave him, and then everyone misinterpreting that to assume that Paul shouldn't continue his journey. Do you see that? There's, there's some serious space for human fallibility in the work of interpretation. And so that should lead us to be incredibly cautious. Incredibly cautious. We test everything. And we hold these things loosely. Finally, this is really important to say. False prophecy is real. And it is so dangerous. It is blasphemous. It is blasphemous to put words into the mouth of God. There is a ton of garbage that goes on in some churches. That is blasphemous. Maybe you're here today and you have experienced this kind of spiritual abuse. And so you have some serious baggage from what was evil, putting words into the mouth of God that he has never said. There is spiritual trauma that people carry from that. So we've got to be very careful, very careful. This is, this is an a example that I, I, I remember at my old church, which isn't super heavy, by the way, for the record. I remember, an old, I remember a young, earnest gentleman um, telling you know, one by one, the prettiest girls in the church that God told them they were going to be together, that, that kind of behavior. I had a word from the Lord. It, it was always the pretty ones. What is, what is going on there? Well, he has a desire, and he's taking God to justify his desire. Blasphemous, okay? So we want to be so careful here when it comes to the practice of prophecy. Very careful, very humble as we handle these things. There's so much more to be said. We're not, we're not going to dive into, okay, what's this look like for our church today? I'm just trying to give us a basic framework on what we're, what we're talking about today. So we've got, these two, we've got this tension at play here. Firstly, we must not despise prophecy. On the other hand, we must never put words into the mouth of God. We must test everything. We must be careful with how we handle these things. Um, let me just share 
two examples from my own life about how this has looked for you, from the life of myself and Larissa, I should say. Uh, the first one actually comes from Larissa, who um, on her way to church one morning was praying for the day the Lord put someone in the congregation on her heart in a, in a prophetic way, I believe, and, and, and gave Larissa basically a message to this person, which was, God has grace for you. She gets to church, comes to this person and says, I think God is saying to you, I think God has given me a message for you. God has grace for you. Tears. <laughs> Absolute tears. Like, like I'm, I'm looking at Dan, right? Because why? Because God had business to do with that person that day, and God used Larissa to unlock that. That is a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. What else do you call that but prophecy? Second example came from me. I had a dream. Dreams in the Bible are a thing. <laughs> Who would have thought it? Um, I had a dream. My friend, I was sitting in a stadium with my friend in my dream. My friend told me about a tragedy that he had just experienced. A couple of while later, sitting down at my, at my dinner table, they told us about the tragedy. And I felt like saying, I already know that. The Lord told me that. I already knew. And I like, didn't know what to do with that information, but just like, I already knew about this thing. And looking at the timelines, it all kind of it happened at the same time. What was happening there was I think God was just wanting that person to know that he knew. That this, this wasn't done apart from him. Right? That he that they weren't alone, that he was with them, and that he knew, and that he, he even told me so that I could be there for them as well. It's interesting that both of those examples are about other people, right? The Lord is using us to bless others in that situation. At some stage, we will circle back and talk about this at greater depth with, uh, and, and with Matt as well, but we can't do any more here because of reasons. If you have a million questions... And I'm aware doing the can of worms thing just opens up a million questions. I actually wrote a master's thesis on prophecy because it was a, I really wanted to think about it at depth. And so I was like, let me, let me do that. And so if you want to read something, I've got something that I wrote that I found was an interesting experience for myself that can be available for anyone that wants it. Come see me. Let's keep moving. That was prophecy. The rest are all a lot more self-explanatory. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be glad to know. Uh, number two, serving. I wonder what that means. Serving, right? There's, there's not much to this. The Greek word diakonia means practical service. Just practical service. These people are the background team players in this church that make us tick. And aren't we thankful for God? to God for all of our service? We have so many. You know who you are. And I'm deeply thankful for those in this church who the Lord uses to serve us. From the worship team tech team, coffee cart, cleaning through the week, the prayer team now, just everyone in this church that serves us in some way. So thankful for that. Number three, teaching. Teaching. Teaching is, make, is the gift of making the truth clear and understandable. This is not the same thing as being a good public speaker. Okay, because some teachers are gifted in a small group setting or maybe a one-on-one -on -one setting maybe in a classroom setting, and some are gifted in a more, and maybe teaching kids as well. And so, yes, teaching, preaching, a lot of crossover, but not exactly the same thing. You don't have to be gifted in a, group, in a public speaking setting. Number four, exhortation or encouragement. 
slightly different things that mean the same thing. The Greek word is parakeleo, kaleo, I should say, which means to come alongside. Come alongside. So this, this, these are the people that are gifted in speaking life into another person's life. They get alongside. They, are, they make great friends, <laughs> great advisors, great mentors. They are wonderful counselors, and they keep the rest of us going. Hot tip, do what I did, marry one of those, and your life will be great. Um, number five, generosity. Generosity. Every Christian is called to be generous in everything they've been given by God. But God has gifted some to be especially generous, whatever that means. God just lays things on their heart, and they are moved to bless others with their generosity. Number six, leadership. Again, seems pretty self-explanatory. The gift of helping people see God's calling for them and bring them along to that end. And finally, acts of mercy. I've seen this one in our church as well. Some people are just specifically drawn to those who are hurting, to the poor, to the weak, to the outsiders, to the marginalized, the elderly, the imprisoned, the whatever it is. Those who escape the notice of the crowds. And these people who are gifted with this, they gravitate towards those people, and they bless them. But do you know what they also do? They help the rest of us see the people that we just look straight past. And I'm so grateful for the people that have this heart. It helps the rest of us love like Jesus loves when we get to see the people that we might have otherwise forgotten. So these are the, the gifts we are called to see ourselves in, in Romans 12, in Romans 12. And as we do try and see ourselves in these gifts, we must remember that God has gifted each of us who have received Jesus. God has gifted each of us. Today, I might get the band starting to make their way back up as well. As we consider this, are you stewarding God's gifts? Are you stewarding God's gifts? Are you using them for his glory? Are you allowing God to work through you and in you? Are you investing yourself into them? Are you praying that God would grow them? Because a Christian has no right to withhold his gifts from the body. They're not yours for your ends. They are his for his ends. No Christian has the right to withhold his gifts from the church, like a bank manager taking his client's money on, to go spend it on a yacht. So too, we have no right to squander what we've been given for his ends. Our gifts are for his bride, not for us. Our gifts are for his bride. Living as a living sacrifice means handing over those gifts for his service. We get this beautiful picture in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Let me just read it again. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The body of Christ, the church, needs you to thrive. Needs every part. Needs the heads, needs the eyes, needs the feet, needs the hands, even needs the appendix. Not sure why, no one does. <laughs> but if we don't have you, you might kill us, right? So we need you. Let's pray.
Lord, we are your body. What a precious thing. Lord, this is about none of us individually, Lord. It is about us as a corporate entity and about your glory. And yet when we step into your plans for our lives, we find blessing. So, Lord, whatever it is that is holding us back from seeing ourselves as a vital member, Lord, would you address that in our hearts? Lord, if it is pride, like Paul puts his finger on here, Lord, would we see that we cannot be above our master? Lord, if we see ourselves as above the church because of all of its imperfections, Lord, we're doing harm to what it is you've called us into. Help us see ourselves rightly and see our roles rightly. Give us joy as we serve you. Lord, for better or worse, we're in this together. And so we want to strive together to walk into what you have for us. For those of us here who are feeling burned by the church, to bring healing. Lord, would those people know that that right now in, in the season of, of feeling that, Lord, that they can they can just heal. Lord, for those of us in the room who feel like we have nothing to offer, Lord, would you rebuke that lie in their hearts, Lord? It is not true. Fill them with a sense of your calling. Lord, we've been trained by our culture and by church culture, unfortunately, Lord, to think a certain way about what the church is, Lord. Like a football game, 22 people in the field and 22,000 in the stands with lots of opinions and lots of criticisms. Lord, we don't want to do that. It breaks your heart. Would you help us live out your vision for the church, Lord? A body, many members, all different all coming together in the power of the Spirit, diverse but unified, blessed with gifts to serve. Lord, help us see how to play our part in this, I pray. Be with us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.